Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 9. Luke and chapter 9. So we've taken uh, about five weeks away from Luke for our fourth annual Summer in Psalms series, and I trust it's been fruitful for you to be in the Psalms, to also be able to hear people who are not me. And so that was nice, right? <laughs> I'm just glad nobody said amen. Uh, but I'm so thankful for uh, Christian, as I told you last week, Christian, who you all know, and uh, Jack, um, just proud of them, and they, they did an excellent job uh, rightly dividing the word for you guys. Uh, but today we're going to be in Luke and 9. Uh, we started Luke back in November, and so we're jumping back in, and we'll be in uh, this uh, book uh, through most of the fall, Okay. Uh, we're going to just look at verses 1 through 9 in our time together this morning. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke chapter 9, starting verse 1, God's Word says, And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. That was my fault, sorry. Now just make sure you were awake. Verse 3, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. I want to begin by... Uh, taking a quick poll, okay? You're Baptist, you like participating in things and raising your hands, right? Um, <laughs> how many of you have ever been on a mission trip of any length? Okay, you can put your hands down. Uh, how many of you have been on a mission trip, those who have been on a mission trip that lasted one week? One week, okay. Uh, how many of you went on, a, went on a mission trip that lasted a month? Anybody? Two weeks. Okay. Um, now, everyone who has been on a mission trip before, raise your hand again if you've been on a mission trip before. Now, keep it up. <laughs> if you have a desire to go again on another one. Okay. All right. You can put your hands down. Um, how many of you have never been on a trip, but you'd like to go on one? couple of y'all? Okay. Now, what is a mission trip? Uh, it, it's, it's what it sounds like. Right? I think we all, we all familiar with what a mission trip is. It's a trip a group takes to some place that is lacking the gospel, right? And typically uh, includes some service projects to help a budding church or the poor. Um, this is a fair description, yes? Um, it's going to a place, right, leaving one's comfort zone in order to give the gospel to people who don't know it, 
in hopes that, at the very least, a seed would be planted and they would come to give King Jesus their allegiance, right? And thus be placed in his boundary transcending kingdom. And the hope is that the gospel will thus spread in that region through those new converts. Now, for those who would like to go on a mission trip again, um, and for those who would like to go on one in the future, I come bearing good news. And uh, for this, you need no passport, nor do you need a plane ticket. Because if you are a Christian, you are on a mission trip right now. And you will continue to be on one until you die. All of us are on a mission trip as we speak. Why do I say that? Because you live in a county of more than 20,000 people, and over 80% of those 20,000 plus people are unchurched, dechurched, not Christian, or never heard the gospel presented to them at all. This means that there are more than 18,000 people within less than 15-mile radius of where I currently stand who, if they died today, would spend eternity separated from Christ. And who will tell them? Well, Christian, you have been summoned by the king to be his ambassador. You have been called to be Christ's witness with Christ's authority, with his power with his provisions to spread his message. Even better, you don't have to go very far. Now in the text we're considering this morning, what we see is the first of Christ's commissioning of his disciples that will set the pattern for every church and every Christian is to minister in his name in Acts and beyond. What this means is that this text is for us. Why? Because in it, we see encouragement and exhortations for our own life in the mission field that is our community. Further, the New Testament is clear that Christians are foreigners, strangers in this land. No matter how at home, we tend to feel at times. And so in our time together this morning, I want to offer you three exhortations, okay? Three from this text that you could take with you and used to leverage your everyday life like you're on a mission trip, because you are. And Jesus is calling you and I to live this way with joy and obedience for his glory. So three points, starting with point number one. Three exhortations, three points. Number one, go in Jesus' name. Go in Jesus' name. Every bit of this is important, right? Go and in Jesus' name. Notice verse 1 and 2. Again, look at the key words that are used here. Jesus called the 12. He gave power and authority. He sent them out. Jesus called, gave, and sent. He called them together. He gave them power. He sent them to go from village to village preaching the message of the kingdom and to care for people's physical needs. That Jesus can do this is because he is the one who has ultimate authority and power. Amen? And here we should see an early form of the Great Commission of Matthew 28, where in the Great Commission, post-resurrection, pre-ascension, Jesus goes to his disciples, and do you remember the first thing he says? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? To him, to me. In other words, all authority that there is possible to possess, right? Jesus says he has it. And so he can command, and so he does, go and make disciples. 
As Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. So we must first begin with identifying who it is that summons us to this task. And who is it? The one who possesses all authority in all of creation. Like you look at verses 7 through 9. And we see again this fellow who we've seen before, Herod the Tetrarch. You know, his dad was the one who tried to commit genocide on all those baby boys. And he's a man who has authority. Mark and Matthew call him King Herod. His authority is derived from the Roman Empire, from Caesar himself. And he uses his authority, if you know Herod, in unseemly ways. While Luke doesn't tell the whole story of John the Baptist, we know from the other synoptic gospels that Herod is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. At the behest of his wife and daughter-in-law, he saw himself as someone who had the authority even to take life as he wills. Now you look at verses 7 through 9, and he wants to know who Jesus is. And he seeks Jesus because he wants his curiosity to be satisfied. And you know, actually, we'll see in time, he gets his wish in chapter 23 of this very gospel. But when Herod questions Jesus, Jesus says nothing to him at all. He opened not his mouth. Herod thinks he should. He thinks Jesus should because Herod thinks he has authority, but little did he know Jesus is the one who has actual authority and thus does not feel compelled to answer Herod's silly question. Now, Jesus' authority is the only real, true authority that exists. You agree with this? It doesn't matter because it's true, okay? Everything is under his sovereign rule, right? And so when he commands, we should what? Listen and obey. And with his authority, he chooses to use us to rescue humanity from their sin, from their fallen state, and from their alienation from God. And where we stand in history, Christ has ascended already to take his rightful place on the throne of the universe. But his mission remains. Who will pick up the task of telling people of their fallen condition and need for a savior now that Christ has ascended? See, this text is Jesus beginning to prepare his disciples for his departure. Who will pick up the mission? The answer is everyone who bears the name of the king is to pick up this mission. Just as disciples here are called and sent and given power, so you, my friend, have been called and sent and given power. But a key that we need to remember is the authority and power we are given as followers of Jesus is a derived one. In other words, we in and of ourselves possess no authority or power. We can do nothing on our own. We need to receive it from Jesus since he is the one commanding and calling and sending and empowering. If you are a Christian, this means that you, yes, you with me? You can agree on this, right? If you are a Christian, this means at some point you recognized your sin, yes? You repented of that sin. You realized you need rescue, but it has to come from outside of yourself. You saw the truthfulness of Jesus and his sacrifice, and then you gave him your allegiance. You called on him as your savior and bent your knee to him as your king. This is what you did, yes? When you converted. Which means that in that moment, you released control over your life, and you said, in effect, from henceforth, 
I am an obedient subject to the king, command me my Lord. So we neither live nor go by our own good pleasure or might. We don't go by our own authority or power. We go by the enablement of who? Of Jesus, the one who sends. And we are to do things that Jesus does. Preach the kingdom and meet needs, freeing people from bondage, both physical and spiritual. Let's illustrate it like this, imperfect as it is. All of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the legal document, Power of Attorney. Yes? You've heard of this before. What is power of attorney? It's the granting someone else the power and authority to act on your behalf, right? So if someone gave you power of attorney, you'd be acting in such a way that it is as if you yourself are the person empowering. But you don't just act freely, right? Do what you want. You must go by what you have been empowered to do. The way you have been empowered to do it, and you are bound by the parameters of that document. That is an imperfect illustration of what Jesus is doing here with his disciples, and by extension, you or I in the Great Commission. We have been deputized by Jesus to proclaim what Jesus has told us to proclaim, to act as he has told us to act, to live as he has told us to live. Our authority and power is only effective and true to the degree that it is biblical and faithful. In other words, since our authority and power is derived from Christ, we have to be diligent to ensure that it is carried out the way he said and not the way we want or have made up for ourselves. And this is the key to it all, isn't it? And it's freeing too because we do not have to live as individuals or as a church under the burden of our own intellect or our own ingenuity, or, or confused as to what it is that Jesus has willed for the church or our lives. We don't have to come up with schemes, or programs, or plans, and ways of reaching the world, or growing in Jesus, because he says, I'm the one who has authority in heaven and on earth, and your power derives from me, and I say how you go, and how you live, and how you tell. And there, there's a lot of freedom in that, I think, isn't there? Well, for me, it is. A ton of freedom in this. Isn't it comforting to know that we don't have to rely on our own abilities and creativity? I'm the least creative person you'll ever meet. I'm glad I don't have to rely on my creativity to grow as a church and reach the world. You know, we talked about this a few weeks ago in Sunday school, that for too long, churches have adopted the tactics of revivalism, perhaps without even realizing it. We have tried to plan and scheme and strategize and invent and rely on pragmatism because we started to believe that we had the authority on our own to decide how the mission of Christ should be carried out. We mimicked the practices of businesses and adopted their models. We started to believe that what the Word of God told us to do wasn't enough, even while we preached sufficiency of Scripture. We started to believe that success, as divined by the world's measure, hinged on our ability to come up with the new and interesting ways to reach the world. We started to fear man more than trusting God would take care of us if we were faithful. We started to believe, even if our motivations were good and right, that we had the power in ourselves to keep church going and assume that if we pursued this attractional model, that the world would just come to us. 
and we wouldn't have to go to them. Like the field of dreams, if you build it, what? They will come. And so we started to believe that success of the mission hinged on what we could come up with. Believing we had the power to decide how the mission was to be carried out and how the mission was carried out was us paying professionals and coming up with attractions and hope that the dying world would come to us. You realize what this approach can do, though, don't you? It can inadvertently or advertently release individual Christians in the church from the responsibility of going and proclaiming. It causes us to settle for a cultural Christianity that was safe and easy. How did it happen? We, we took the power for ourselves instead of relying on the simplicity of carrying out the mission, the way the commanding Christ said to carry it out. I mean, you, you read this text again, verses 1 through 6, this is complicated, friends. We trust in our ability to draw and entertain rather than trusting in the power of ordinary obedience and the unleashed word of Christ being proclaimed by every follower on mission. David Platt said this, he said, we, can't, we cannot be content with being casual cultural Christians who spend the majority of our Christian lives as spectators in services that cater to our comforts, giving offerings the majority of which are used on places for us to meet, professionals to do ministry, and programs that revolve around us and our preferences. That is not New Testament Christianity, and it is not God's design for the church. Rather, the design is here, and it's simple. Receive authority from Christ to carry out the mission of Christ in the way of Christ for the glory of Christ. Let me say that again, because it's key. Receive, this is the design, receive authority from Christ to carry out the mission of Christ in the way of Christ for the glory of Christ. To not rely on ourselves or get bogged down in our weaknesses or compensate by pretending the results are contingent on our creativity. The task is to draw our power from Christ and pursue his mission the way he calls us to pursue it because we simply do not have the authority on our own to do as we please. Think of like an ambassador. You know what an ambassador is, right? What's an ambassador? An ambassador is someone sent out, right, by their nation to a foreign land to advocate for the interests of their home country. They don't serve by their own good pleasure. They serve at the pleasure and behest of the one who sent them, and they have the full weight of their nation behind them. Their ultimate loyalty is to their homeland, not to the country they happen to reside in. And their authority is from a derived place from somewhere else. They are not autonomous agents acting on their own, but are messengers sent by their true home. That's a good picture of what we are. We as followers of Christ are in a foreign land. Don't you feel sometimes not at home here? Crying out for another country? We're in a foreign land. We're called to advocate for our true homeland where our ultimate allegiance resides, which is the kingdom of Christ. And says Jesus here, we have the full weight of the kingdom behind us. As authorized agents of the king, it is not by our power or authority that we serve. It's even better. It's by the power and authority of Christ that we minister to people as we go to them. Don't you see? This is something every church and every Christian needs to be reminded of and remind themselves of often. Jesus is king. We are his subjects. 
And his ideas will always be better than ours. And his idea for reaching the world, for reaching the community, for reaching your family, for reaching your friends, for reaching your classmates and your co-workers is you. That's his design. It's, it's you seeing his beauty. It's you tasting his grace and internalizing his gospel, submitting to his authority, and then going out and leveraging where he has sovereignly placed you to proclaim his message. That's Jesus' idea for reaching the world, for bringing people into the kingdom. Luke tells us in verse 1 and 2 that not only did Jesus call and give, but he also told them exactly what they should do. Proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. That's the tactic. Proclaim and essentially have compassion on the plight of people, offering them physical aid and the only thing that can make them truly whole, which is the message of this glorious king. So we don't even need to come up with the message. Jesus tells us what the message is, and this leads us to our second point, okay? Point number two, our second exhortation. Go with Jesus' message. Go with Jesus' message. I want you to notice that in verse 2, Luke says Jesus sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God. You see that? Sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 6. It says that they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel. You see that? In one verse, they proclaimed the kingdom. And then in another verse, they preached the gospel. So which is it? Did they preach the gospel or the kingdom? What's the answer, Chuck? Yes. <laughs> Because the gospel is the message of the kingdom. See, the gospel, which, you know, literally means good news, is not then good advice. It's not good suggestions. It's not good tips on how to live. It isn't the message that if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll be accepted by God. It's not four ways to have a fulfilling marriage and well-adjusted kids. It's not good financial suggestions on how to maximize your portfolio. It's not good tips on how to have your best life now. It's not suggestions from an ancient rabbi who had some neat things to say, some cool guidelines on how to be nice to people, and you can follow them if you want or ignore them if you want. It's not even primarily about how you and I can get to heaven when we die. The gospel is the message that God's long-awaited kingdom has broken into time and space in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's the good news that the broken world has been invaded by the true king who intends to reconcile God and man. It's the good news that through the sin-bearing cross and victorious resurrection, God plans on reversing the curse and enabling those who submit to his king to live as they were created, and to one day do away with all pain and sickness and sorrow and death once and for all. It's the message that every sad thing will eventually come untrue in a truer and better Eden, where there is unbroken fellowship with the triune God. The gospel of the kingdom that we are to preach is to tell people, this is what we are to tell people, like John the Baptist did, they are fallen, wretched, creatures who must repent and turn to Christ. Because even though they are wretched rebels, they also happen to be image bearers of their creator who is so loved by him 
that he would happily come and take on their punishment so that he can bring them close and adopt them into his family. That's the message we're to proclaim to people. Our task is to know this message, right? We got to know it to take it to people so that they can face the fact of their fallen state, but also that they would see the beauty and love of Christ who came and brought a better kingdom with a promise that the kingdom will come in fullness at the end of the age. The message we preach is that the kingdom of God has shown up in a person. Heaven has come to earth. The true king has landed, and his name is Jesus, and you have a choice to make. Every person has a choice to make. Crown him or kill him. Russell Moore said it this way, Often we Christians start our gospel proclamation with triumph over sin. Fair enough. The gospel of Christ is indeed the reversal of sin and of death and hell. But without a broader context, such teaching can treat Christ as a means to an end, a step from the Alpha of Eden to the Omega of Heaven. In a truly Christian vision of the kingdom of God, though, Jesus of Nazareth isn't a hoop we jump through to extend our lives into eternity. Jesus is the kingdom of God in a person. As such, he is the meaning of life, the goal of history, and the pattern of the future. The gospel of the kingdom starts and ends with the announcement that God has made Jesus the emperor and that he plans to bend the cosmos to fit Jesus' agenda, not the other way around. That's the message of the kingdom. This means that, I need you to lock in with me here, every person you meet, every person you know, every member of your family, every friend, every classmate, every coworker, everyone you will see today at the store or restaurant or on the road either belongs to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. Either they have submitted to Christ and he is Lord over their life or they have remained in their fallen state and submit to self. There are only two choices before us. There is no third way available to men. All of us are born into sin and fallenness by nature of being descendants of Adam. So unless a move is made to transfer us into the kingdom of God, unless we make a choice when confronted with our wretchedness and our rebellion and utter helplessness and repent and submit to Jesus, we will live and die separated from our Creator. And the task before us who have given our allegiance to Jesus is to go and call those people we know and those people we don't to repent because if they die never having repented, they will be lost for eternity. We're to warn them of the coming wrath, tell them of the glories of Christ, the love of Christ, the beauty of Christ, and the hope found in Him, lest they die forever. Didn't you see that disciples were to knock the dust off their feet? You see that? If they are rejected. This is something, SMG whiz for you, Jews did when they went from pagan land and entered the promised land. They would kick the, the uncleanness off their feet. But Jesus says here it is a testimony against those who reject the message because part of the good news of the kingdom is that Jesus has come as Savior, but one day he will act as judge. And true justice will come. And even kicking the dust off is another warning to them that says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Call on Jesus before it's too late. Enjoy God now and forever, or enjoy your sin now and be lost forever. Look at Duncan explains it like this. He says, the good news of the kingdom that Jesus has sent his disciples out to proclaim is that God in his grace and mercy has not left us to our own self-destruction, but that he himself has come in flesh to rescue us from the domain of darkness and the kingdom of Satan and the bondage of this passing age and to welcome us by grace to the everlasting kingdom of life and joy and light and love and hope and happiness. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news of God's liberation of us so that we may enjoy him. John Piper makes this point. The essence of the fall of Eve and Adam and all of us in Adam is the supreme pleasure we have in being independent and deciding for ourselves what is true and right and beautiful rather than finding supreme pleasure in God as the fountain of all that is true and right and beautiful. The essence of the fall, he says, is preferring to be God rather than to enjoy God. So everyone in this community in this county, in this state, in this country, in this world, is either their own king or Christ is their king. As Piper said, the essence of sin, of all sin, is this question, who is king? Is it you or is it Jesus? It really is that simple. The disciples are to go from village to village and say, repent, the kingdom of God is here in a person, so turn to him and live or reject him and stay spiritually dead. And that's our message too, because the choice still remains for all people. Friends, we as humans are not good kings. Do you know that? We are bad kings. We are lousy rulers of our own lives. This is why, as we said a few minutes ago, we can't be trusted (laughs) to decide for ourselves how the church should be, what it should do, or how it should do it. We can't rule our own lives wisely. How on earth could we operate the church of Christ? We're bad kings. We're bad rulers. And perhaps the weirdest part of this all, we aren't really in charge anyway. Even if we think we are, God does not relinquish sovereignty to anyone, though he will give us over to our sin if we persistently and stubbornly reject his rule, as Romans 1 tells us. You know, you have likely never heard of the name Joshua Norton. Anybody heard of Joshua Norton before? I was convinced Harry was going to raise his hand. I was just convinced. Norton was a man who lived in San Francisco during the gold rush days of the 1800s. Well, on September 17, 1859, he declared himself the emperor of the United States. He would frequently march around the streets of San Francisco in colorful outfits. He would have a sword and a cape. He had a plume in his hat. People would humor him by giving him free tickets to events and free meals at restaurants. And he even printed his own currency. Eventually, he actually expanded his title to emperor of the United States and protector of Mexico. Everyone knew he was insane. Okay, Everybody knew he was crazy. No one believed him to be the emperor of the United States, but they enjoyed humoring him and getting a good laugh out of his charade. In 1880, Norton died and 10,000 people attended his funeral. He lived and he died thinking he was the true emperor of America when he really wasn't. We humans trying to rule our own lives look as silly to God as old Joshua Norton. But it isn't humorous, is it? The kingdom is here. 
Jesus has moved heaven and earth to get to wayward man, but now here's the rub. He's decided to rely on people who have submitted to him to reach the people who have not. Christ's plan A for reaching the world is his church gathering like this for equipping to be reminded of who Jesus is, to behold his splendor, and then going into our daily lives and telling people about him. And this is a message that must be proclaimed. We must preach it. We we no longer, friends, you realize this, we can no longer assume because we live in the deep south where you can't throw a rock without hitting a church that everyone we know and see on a daily basis knows the gospel. Well, you can't assume that anymore. We, we, We not only can't assume that people are mostly Christian here, we can't even assume a majority of the people here even know or can articulate the gospel. Who will tell them? Who who will tell the people you know the gospel? The gospel of the kingdom must be heralded. It must be spoken. It must be told by us to those in our sphere of influence. After all, what's a mission trip if people aren't calling people to repent and trust Christ? Here's a famous quote you've probably heard before. It's attributed to Frank Sanson. St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that before? Now, there are about a thousand things wrong with this quote. Okay, for one, St. Francis never said it. And two, it doesn't make sense. And three, it gives us an excuse to not actually speak the gospel. Because we could just say, the gospel I preach is how I live. Is it? People can watch how you live and suddenly know the contents of the gospel. They could see you and know that the kingdom of God has arrived in Christ and that he came because we're rebellious sinners by watching you be moral. Saying preach the gospel when necessary, use words, is like saying tell me your phone number if necessary, use digits. Or feed the hungry if necessary, use food. Or play football if necessary, use a football. If we're to push back the darkness, we must, each and every one of us, preach the gospel to people around us. We must articulate the gospel and actually speak it to people and call them to repent and submit to the true king. As Charles Spurgeon said, it is the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. If we're to do that, we need to know and internalize the gospel ourselves, don't we? must spend time in the Word of God coming to the gathering of the church, thinking about the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves, because the gospel isn't only, did you know this, for non-Christians. It's for Christians too. You need it. And you must remind yourselves how much you need it, which will also prevent self-righteousness and a legalistic disposition to the lost. After all, how can those who don't know Christ be expected to act like people who do? We must keep Jesus always on our hearts and minds. We must be crazy about him. And then you know what will happen? We won't be able to not preach about him. If he's always on our minds and hearts, the message about him will come out of our mouths too. I think of, you know what I thought of during this? I was thinking of grandparents with their grandkids. Do you know how you could tell if someone has grandkids? They'll tell you. 
Grandparents, they love having grandkids, right? They, they love it. They glory in them. They have pictures of them, right, on their phones to show you, and they're all around their house. They love being around them and playing with them, and they jump at the chance to tell other people about them. You know why? Because their grandkids are always on their hearts and minds. And so that's what comes out of their mouths. Because what comes out of your mouth is what is on your heart and mind. And perhaps one of the reasons we don't proclaim Jesus more is because he isn't on our hearts and minds enough. But we could change that, can't we? By spending more time with his people and with his word and being diligent about getting more of him. Then before long, we'll find that we can't help but to share news of the kingdom with others. But now, all of this can seem a little overwhelming, yes? It could seem, I realize, it could seem daunting, everything I've said. And let's be honest, it could be kind of scary to go and tell others about Jesus. It's scary, yes? I mean, anyone who has ever gone on a mission trip will tell you that they were nervous when they went. But then you add to the mix that our mission trip involves telling friends and family and coworkers and classmates at school and strangers that they must repent and bow knee to Jesus, and it becomes even more nerve-wracking. But there's some good news for we, and I include myself in this because I get nervous and timid and frightened too. There's good news for we who are timid or nervous or afraid, and this brings us to our third and final point, point number three. We must trust in Jesus' provisions. Trust in Jesus' provisions. Notice among the positive calls to preach the kingdom and heal the sick, Jesus gives them negative instructions too, doesn't he? Take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics and rely on the hospitality of people and towns you visit, but stay in one place in each village. This is essentially what he's saying. So the disciples are allowed one basic item, right? Imagine packing for a foreign mission trip and Jesus comes and tells you, you can't take anything but the clothes on your back. This is what he's telling the disciples. They're allowed one thing, a tunic. Why does he do this? Why not allow them to take more? There are several reasons, okay? For one, the itinerant philosophers of the day would travel with a money bag and they'd go from house to house soliciting money. They, they were like salesmen and they would take advantage of people and beg for support. So instead of staying at one house, they would like go to door to door begging for money. And Jesus doesn't want the disciples to be like them. And he doesn't want his disciples to be confused with these traveling sophists. He also thus wants to be sure that they go out and do not seek their own advancement, but proclaim the gospel instead. He doesn't want it to be about them. He wants it to be about the kingdom. Another reason, says James Edwards, is that Jesus sends them into mission with a calculated deficit, reminding them clearly, perhaps even painfully, that they were prepared for mission only as they depend on him. He adds, if they go with an elaborate support system and provisions for every eventuality, then they need not go in faith. And if they go not in faith, their proclamation is not believable. So what this comes down to is trust. Do they trust that when they are faithful to Christ and strive to obey, that God will take care of them? Do they trust that they will be provided for while in service to the God of all things? See, they were also supposed to be so dedicated to the task of their mission that their personal comfort was inconsequential. 
The king had a mission for them, and that was to take priority over even their own wants or desires. And that's a lesson for us too, isn't it? Devotion to the task rather than devotion to oneself is an absolute requirement for those who serve God. See, when we think of evangelism and calling people to repent and having these uncomfortable conversations with people about their eternal destiny and we get nervous and timid, or even if we say we don't have time or it could cost us too much, we need to ask ourselves if we are allowing other things to stand in the way of our giving a gospel that will alter their eternal destiny and change their lives here on earth? Is our comfort more important? Is the potential cost of their rejection too high a price to pay? Is our devotion to other things standing in our way of this task that we've been given by our Savior? Do we have the faith to trust in God's provisions if we're faithful? Because here's the thing we must see that will be freeing to us. I'm going to tell you something that will be really freeing to you, okay? Are you ready? People's receptivity to the gospel does not ultimately rest on you. We don't persuade or argue people into heaven. People's receptivity to the gospel message of the king does not ultimately rest on us. As one Puritan said, we knock on the door of their hearts, but the spirit comes with a key and opens the door. So so it doesn't rest on our intellect, our speaking ability, our cunning, our creativity, or anything to do with us. All we're called to do is give the message. Even if it's a fumbling, stumbling, nervous one. Whether they receive it or not, it's not up to us, and it never was. Look at who Jesus is calling in the immediate context of this passage. The disciples are a bunch of unimpressive bumpkins from the backwaters of first century Palestine. They haven't been to seminary, have they? They haven't taken an evangelism class. They're fishermen and a tax collector, a military zealot. They are the least impressive people you could find. They don't even know the full contents of the gospel yet. Jesus hasn't been crucified. Even after Jesus tells them he must die, they still don't get it. Jesus tells them parables, and they're like, what does that mean? And he explains it to them, and they're still like, what? Even on the way to the cross, they're fighting over who should have first place in the kingdom. But Jesus sends them anyway. He gives them the message. He gives them his power so they don't need to rely on themselves. And they're going to eventually turn the world upside down. But here they don't even have the indwelling Holy Spirit yet, and you do. And Israel is primed and ready for the message of the kingdom, and Jesus sends out these 12 fellows to go preach in his name, and even Jesus knows they will be rejected by some people. This should be a comfort to all of us, because guess what? I'm going to tell you something else that's going to give you great comfort, okay? Like the disciples, you're unimpressive. Do you know that? Y'all are unimpressive. I'm unimpressive. We're all unimpressive. Let's be unimpressive together, okay? I love you in Christ, but you're unimpressive, okay? And you're a mess. Do you know you're a mess? I'm a mess. You have sin in your life you're wrestling with right now. You have poor time management skills. You stretch yourself too thin. You prioritize things that won't matter in 50 years, let alone 10,000. Your zeal and passion gets raised over goofy things sometimes. You struggle and sometimes you stumble and fall. And if the mission depended on your and my impressiveness, that would be very bad news. But it doesn't. It depends on the beauty and power 
of this glorious Christ. We are to rely on Jesus. We are to trust in his power. We're to go in his name and not our own and just preach the kingdom and the spirit will do the rest. He'll open hearts. We can't do that. And if people reject the message, they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting Jesus. So in such cases, we shake the dust off our feet and we pray for their eventual salvation, but we did what we're called to do, which is to tell them the gospel. And that could very well be the seed that takes roots months or even years down the line. But friend, we must all see the urgency in this task. We must all see that if we are Christians, then we are on a mission trip in this passing world. That we serve a kingdom not of this world. That we are foreigners and strangers in a hostile land. And that Jesus' plan to reach the world with his gospel of the kingdom is through ordinary faithfulness to go tell people of his greatness. You have people in your sphere of influence who, if they died today, which they might. Every one of us knows somebody who died unexpectedly, yes? What is your life? It's a vapor. You have somebody, you have people in your sphere of influence who, if they died today, would spend eternity separated from Christ. Eternity. No second chance. You will see people today, this week at work, at school, at ball practices and games, and even around the dinner table who don't know Jesus. And some of them think they do. But their lives evidence no submission to the king. And you have the message that can save their souls. Would you keep it to yourself? Like imagine if someone... It came out that someone had the cure for cancer or Alzheimer's or some other awful disease for years and years and they kept it to themselves. They inoculated themselves but didn't share it with anyone else. And they washed these people with cancer, Alzheimer's, withered and died. You'd ask, how could they do that? How could they have this life-saving cure and not share it? And friend, remember, you are not a Christian because you're better or more moral, or more put together, or anything like that. You're a Christian because someone told you about Jesus. And the Spirit opened your heart, and God saved you. You're just a beggar. But will you tell other beggars where you got bread? We have a message about a king who would save people now and into eternity. Would we hoard it to ourselves? We cannot stay content living safe lives in the comfort of our busyness and safety of cultural Christianity that is just an American dream spiritualized while the world around us perishes. Jesus calls us to a better way, to leverage our lives and relationships, to call people to him. And is that not the greatest honor that there is in the universe, that the king of the universe would use ordinary people as unimpressive and messy as we are, he would use ordinary people like you and me to affect other people's eternity. Is there a greater honor than this? To be an ambassador for this glorious Christ? What more important message is there to herald than the good news of King 
Jesus who has broken into history and brought a better kingdom that will outlast all the others. Is that not a high honor? And better still, we don't need to rely on our ingenuity or our intellect or our power of persuasion abilities. We just need to be faithful. God will handle the results. And isn't faithfulness how the Bible measures success anyway? 